Welcome back to Source Material. Welcome. I am Jared Ballou here with Marissa Gall, as always. Hi. This week, um, we're continuing on our uh, Harry Potter Harry Potter train with the fifth book, um, The Order of the Phoenix. Yes. Finally, we are through the longest book of the series. It's a bit of a slog, yeah. It, there's a lot going on, and as you can imagine, and probably know yourselves, that means that a lot is left out. So mm-hmm. we'll do our best to condense it down because we don't need to add to the um, time and length that it takes to read this book and watch this movie and then listen to yeah. this podcast. Yeah. We'll try to keep it uh, somewhat short and sweet in that regard. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, I had not watched these movies basically five through the end of the movies probably as much as I have the first three or four same yeah I don't I don't remember these movies like five through eight I think I've probably only seen them once or twice each yeah before doing this so it was more I was more um interested in these because I just because I hadn't seen them as much Right. Anyways, I couldn't um, recall off the top of my head the exact differences. Like I can no. pretty well with. I mean, the first I remember three. not liking, or I remember I have impressions of the movies from when I first watched them. Yeah. And I was curious to see how much, how many of those stand after this. Right. I had I had forgotten some of the things that rewatching it irked me. Yeah. Well, I don't think I've ever read the book and then immediately watched the movie for the last four. Right. So that'll always, be that'll be interesting too. Yeah. Or was definitely interesting for this one. Well, and when by the time we get to Deathly Hollows, I mean that will be the one and only time they are giving essentially probably four hours to a book. If you think because it's split over two movies. Yeah. So will we see you know a better adaptation because of that? Yeah. Stay tuned. But we're just going to uh, dive right in to our usual tids and bits. Bringing that one back. Go for it. You don't have a say. I'm doing it. So. That's fine. But I appreciate cool the it. encouragement. Um, um, <laughs> you start. Yes. Yeah. With my tids. And then we get to your bits and then it all comes together in the end. <laughs> So we've already covered J.K. Rowling. See our previous uh, kind of footnotes episode for that. But this book was published on June 21st, 2003. Another June or summertime uh, release date. So last episode, I believe Goblet of Fire came out in the summer. So uh, and on a Saturday. So kids wouldn't have to worry about leaving school, Mm -hmm. things like that. Um, so this was, uh, from Bloomsbury in the UK, Scholastic in the U S and now we have rainforest publishing in Canada that's Hmm. added to the list. So we've got all the other countries, uh, SOL, I guess I know I'm assuming it's distributed from the UK because they are part of the European union or they once were RIP. Yeah. (laughs) Brexit. Um, so this was actually the longest gap between book releases. So this was three year gap between Goblet of Fire and Order of the Phoenix. Um, and it makes sense because this is the longest book of the series. Uh, it sold 5 million copies in its first 24 hours. Wow. 24 hours. And this is not a book like these are copies that people either physically buying or I imagine 2003. I don't even know if we had e-readers at that point that that we would see that big of a jump. 
I don't think so. Probably. I don't think we had Kindles, or if we did, they were they were. If we did, they weren't like really popular. No, especially for this age group of five million copies, yeah. like insane. Um, and despite heavy security, thousands of copies of books were actually stolen from an Earlstown um, Maryside warehouse on June fifteenth. So hmm. uh, about a week before the release date, there was people people literally stealing these books. Yeah. I think uh, people, I, it's, I, I still remember going to those midnight releases and like I said, I think I said this in a different episode, but I don't think there's going to be another series like this ever again, maybe where, um, there was so much anticipation for a book to drop. Like, yeah, I don't know. You, maybe you, the, maybe the next game of Thrones, but I think even that will die down because the show is done. Well, think about this age group too. the, the obsession that, yeah. That, kids in general have for their loves and their passions are just unmatched as adults. Like, I don't know. There was a lot of adults who are like really into it as well. well and absolutely. It w- I think, I think it was just one of those phenomenon that you made like one of the global kind of like phenomenon that maybe you won't see as much anymore because there's so many different, so much content now. Yeah. That everybody can like, you could watch, you know, TV, you know, 20 TV shows in a year and still not even scratch the surface of what's being made now. There's oh, just so yeah. much content. I feel like but there's not quite as many like universally uni- adored content. Yeah. I mean, it's a product of its time. Yeah. This was probably a perfect storm of the time that it was written, the, the age group, and then just the writing itself being as good as it is. Um, this is just a fun fact that I found, uh, the first official foreign translation of this book appeared in Vietnamese on July 21st, 2003. Mm. So these are obviously translated into, to other languages, but, uh, the first one was Vietnamese. So interesting. Good job for you, Vietnam. In terms of reception, right off the bat, when the American Library Association's Best Book Award for Young young Adults in 2003, um, and it also once again received the Oppenheim Toy Portfolio Gold Medal in 2004, um, and it was pretty well received by critics. uh, When it came to negative reviews, a lot of that was dealing with the violence and the questions of morality that uh, were being brought up. So... I think they didn't like that. I think they were saying that because obviously these started as children's book to aimed at readers who were supposed to be, you know, Harry's age 11, but JK Rowling has made it very well known. She wrote the books to, to age with the readers. So I don't think introducing ideas. I mean, hell goblet of fire introduces death. Like, yeah, someone dies. Well, I mean, there's death in all of the books, but, but I, yes, I mean, this one's definitely darker. But how many eleven-year-olds are able to sit down and read a eight-hundred-page book? Exactly. And anyways, that's, like it's, it's clearly, I think, to to me, anyways, it was pretty clear that this was meant for a slightly older audience, just right. from the length of the book. I mean, oh yes, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but. And that's kind of the sense that I got. I don't know know if it's, you know, the fact that she's bringing up the turmoil between a, a body of government, uh, an authority authority, and then, you know, a group that is working to undermine that if that comes into it at all. But yeah, there's definitely a more mature, more complex, um, themes and plots here. Like, Oh, when you see what, when you see what's going on with the ministry of magic, that kind of thing. 
Mm-hmm. There's definitely a lot of uh, anger towards the establishment that's coming out in this in <laughs> yes. this book. Yes, absolutely. Um, I'll just point out um, one of the reviews. Um, a New York Times writer, John Leonard, praised the novel, and he said, "The Order of the Phoenix starts slow, gathers speed, and then skateboards with somersaults to its furious conclusion. As Harry gets older, Rowling gets better." However, he did also have a criticism saying that um, Draco Malfoy is one note and Lord Voldemort is essentially predictable. Um, I can't fault him for saying Draco Malfoy is one note. However, I do agree with that. Yeah. Um, I, I know for sure we're going to see in um, Half-Blood Prince a change mm. with Voldemort being predictable. Um, I have a criticism like of this book, but I won't talk about it until we get to into the plot. But but like we all know what Voldemort's been after this whole time, so I don't I don't see how you can introduce like a different motive or change. So to call him predictable is uh, odd to me. But um, also we see development with that character the more in the in the last two books. So yeah, definitely. We get so much more info. This book is not was definitely more about Harry changing it's harry's it's it's his growing pains in it's, terms of yeah it's probably the book coming where, to terms with yeah. life is unfair and it's cruel it's probably the book where he's like the most insular the most isolated yes. I, would, uh, I think of his own choosing of his he, own choosing yes yeah. well partially there there is isolation in mm-hmm. in other things but we'll get to that but i will um attempt to briefly summarize this um by briefly i mean it's still two paragraphs and this This is is a uh, monster of a book and um and obviously we get into the nitty-gritty later on but like we said we're not going to be able to deep dive into absolutely everything we take hours so uh it would (laughs) and i don't want to sit here for that long so no no it's a beautiful day out um, as much as Not I, that we can go outside anyways, we can go outside. We just can't go from outside into other places. Yeah. <laughs> Day 20 of quarantine is going really well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so For future listeners, we're uh, recording this in the middle of the uh, coronavirus the, pandemic. So yeah. So honestly, this Fun is times. And I will say before we get started on anything, reading this book in the midst of a global pandemic and the it goes to show the matureness of the um the storyline in terms of me reading about a magical ministry that is failing wildly yeah. and living through an administration such as this. So it's shockingly relevant, shockingly relevant. And I um, think that is when you uh, have, yeah. Yeah. When you have an administration who, uh, doesn't look at, uh, facts that is knowingly and purposefully ignorant. Yeah. We'll get to that later. So, the plot summary. We are picking up after book four with Harry's dreadful summer back at number four, Privet Drive. He hasn't heard anything about the whereabouts of Voldemort really since he has returned home at the end of the semester. Um, and then, you know, crash cut into uh, a dementor attack on Harry and his cousin Dudley on their way home um, from an outing, uh, which leads to a threatened expulsion, a reversed expulsion, a, a hearing Harry um, learning of the refounding of the Order of the Phoenix, which we learn is a group that helped during the rise of Voldemort the first time. 
and uh, included Harry's parents, Sirius Black, Lupin, um, the Longbottoms, whatnot. And he is reunited with Hermione, Ron, the Weasleys, and Sirius at the headquarters of the Order of the Phoenix in London. Um, There he learns that the rift between Dumbledore and Hogwarts and the Ministry is larger than ever, with the Ministry not only undermining Dumbledore's authority and power, but also Harry's reputation and completely denying that Lord Voldemort has returned to power. So that takes up uh, about 10 chapters in the book. And then Harry is returning to Hogwarts his fifth year. And he finds that the Ministry of Magic has infiltrated Hogwarts by way of Dolores Umbridge, the new Defense Against the Dark Art teacher and undersecretary to Minister Cornelius Fudge. So it's safe to say Harry's fifth year is really hard. Uh, We'll get to his angst and all of that later, but it is the OWL exam year. He has a wild temper, a new villain in Umbridge, and a lifetime ban from Quidditch constant dreams and visions of Lord Voldemort and the Department of Mysteries and Dumbledore is basically nowhere to be found um, who has isolated himself from Harry at every turn. The only thing that keeps his spirits up is the founding of Dumbledore's army which is a secret meeting of students practicing defense against the dark arts art spells and jinxes in the room of requirements due to um, no use of magic in Professor Umbridge's classroom. All of this comes tumbling down with the discovery of the DA by Umbridge, uh, the escape of Dumbledore from Hogwarts amidst his attempted arrest, uh, the threat of Sirius's torture and murder at the hands of Voldemort, leading Harry and Dumbledore's army to the Department of Mysteries on a rescue mission almost entirely doomed to fail. Dot, dot, dot. (laughs) We'll go from there. I tried to touch on things that were in the book that aren't in the movie. We'll get to those later, but that's, uh, it's just, uh, it's so much. No, that was good. Was it, was we'll, it okay? We'll, go, we'll get into the, to the d- details more. Yes. I mean, when, I you have, get a, when you get a longer book like this, we can't, we just can't go through the entire plot. And I, and like, I literally and, just made a list. I'm like, here are plot yeah. points that never come up, that never exist. And we're just going to say them and never touch on them again. Yeah. So I've got a little bit of that, but we'll save that for when we get to the comparison. So, uh, what do you have for me? All right, let's get into the movie. Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix came out in July of 2007. So this actually came out 10 days before the final book came out. <gasps> Whoa. So there was a lot of speculation. in like Yeah, that. like it was bang, bang, this book. That, I mean, this movie, then the book. So there's a lot of speculation of what was going to happen in the seventh book based off of what they cut out of this movie. And I'll get into that a little bit more. So there's kind of an interesting dynamic there. But yeah, just as the book series was finishing, this movie was coming out. Wow. Also, July 2007, just to set the scene a little bit more, that was also the summer that I think At World's End, the Pirates of the Caribbean movie came out. Oh. The third one. Yes, yes. So it was the height of the uh, Johnny Depp mania going on. Um, this is the first Harry Potter movie where we have both a new director and a new screenwriter. Yeah, Steve Cloves. Steve Cloves uh, did not do this one. So we have David Yates coming in for his first one. David Yates, of course, has subsequently done every single Harry Potter movie 
after this as well, including the Fantastic Beasts movies. Mm -hmm. So you can see his style kind of in the rest of them. One, I mean, in, you can really. There is one one mechanism he uses in this movie in particular that trans like literally is shot for shot in Fantastic Beasts. Yeah, we'll get we'll into get that in a sec. Um, so Yates is a British director. He this was actually weirdly I didn't I wouldn't have guessed this. It was only his second movie, and his first movie wasn't necessarily big either. It was called the Teachborn claim the Teachborn claimant something like that. The teach like Teachborn Clement. Clement. I don't know. Clay, I don't know. Obviously did super well. <laughs> yeah. It's a um, really easy name. <laughs> so that was his only movie. He, he was mostly known for short films and television before that in the UK. Um, okay. And his only, his only movie other than that, the, his first one and then the Harry Potter movies he's done. The only other movie he's directed is 2016's Tarzan. So, Ooh. yeah, mm. but he's done. So he's done eight movies, six of those being Harry Potter movies. So a little boxed in there. He's very much the Harry Potter director. Um, yeah. So it, actually, he was not the first choice. Wasn't the second choice or third choice <gasps> oh, either. Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> they originally approached Mike Newell, who, if you'll remember, did Goblet of Fire. He yeah. turned it down. Then they approached John Pierre, as you know, he turned it down. They approached Mira Nair. It's also turned down. And then also Guillermo del Toro and Matthew Vaughn were also approached who also turned down the opportunity. Guillermo would have done so well. It would have been amazing. I don't know. He must have been working on like Hellboy 2 or something at the time. It, 2000, That'd yeah. That'd be my guess. That would be my, but like. Well, Pan's Labyrinth actually, which honestly, I'm glad he didn't do this. If the, I mean, Pan's Labyrinth is beautiful oh, and yes. untouchable and I I'm wondering if it's based on any, like a, an amalgamation Didn't of things. Did we talk about Pan's Labyrinth a little bit? We did when he was doing, when we did Hellboy yeah. a little bit. But um, I remember we talked about him with Alfonso Cuaron too, that, mm -hmm. that those are two people we thought would do a good job with it. So Yeah. Um, but he was probably approached because the studio saw him as fit to handle some of the more edgy or emotional kind of aspects. And a lot of his previous work in television also dealt with some political themes. Okay. So that might've also been why they thought he was a good fit because this book is probably, it gets it, political. It might not be the most political in the Harry Potter. Well, actually it probably is. It might be, but it's really where they start ramping up. I mean, you get that towards the end of the fourth book, but the fifth book, a hundred percent, they yeah. go right in to that put more political kind of plot lines. Um, so, um, yeah, that's probably why he got it. After he was um, given the the job, he approached Mike Newell, who did Goblet of Fire, and um, invited him to a pub and just kind of picked his brains about what it's like to direct a Harry Potter movie. So I guess he did. He picked the worst director to ask that <laughs> of. And I'm just, and I'm not ashamed that I'm saying that. Yeah. And, and I think probably he, this was just the first movie of this kind of scale he ever did. So that might have been kind of and a little bit. And you know what? It shows what he was asking about, but, yeah. uh, yeah. So that's David Yates. Interesting. You know, what's so odd. This is like one of the shortest things because he doesn't have a huge background. No, I mean, and he was pretty well, I guess, well known in, in England and like, right. But he was known as a good director for television and that like he would get the best out of a lot of the actors. So, you know, he's certainly not a bad director, but he just didn't have a lot of work 
in the movie in movie big movies like this well and which i, I mean you see a lot actually you see a yeah, lot of directors yeah. who do like an indie movie or something and then they get plugged into a huge blockbuster and a lot of times it works out pretty i'm just well. wondering if he's worked with essentially kids before because i don't know um we'll get into that with the the details of it later but i have yeah. feelings um steve cloves who of course adapted the previous four books into the movies he turned down this one because of exhaustion and he was just kind of interested in doing some other some other projects just to get away from it a little bit i i get that but also i think even steve cloves exhausted could have done a better job <laughs> but um so who's our new writer our new screenwriter is michael goldenberg um he was actually considered originally to to screenwrite be the screenwriter for the first movie oh okay they went back to him um this was his fourth movie um the other two that were kind of more notable that he did were peter pan 2003 peter pan and uh the movie contact he did the movie Contact? He, the, he wrote the movie, co-wrote the movie Contact. Um, I need to watch that movie, but I do know about, it's Jodie Foster. Yeah. And science and death and dads on the beach or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. All right, cool. I've seen it. It was a long time ago. I don't remember it. Um, and then after this movie, he went on to do the terrible, terrible Green Lantern movie. Um, but you know what? That's how Ryan Reynolds and Blake Lively met. So do we have him to thank for that? Maybe. Wasn't worth it. Um, he rewrote, he rewrote, <laughs> it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth no, it. No, he re he rewrote the script. So I don't know how much of it was him, but he did rewrite it. Um, and it still was that. Okay. And he was also going to write the screenplay for Green Lantern too, but I'm guessing because the movie tanked, they're not doing that because it's been like nine years. Um, and Maybe then, for charity, they'll do it. And then he also wrote a screenplay for Wonder Woman, oh. but it was not used. And he is the up screenwriter for the upcoming Artemis Fowl movie directed by a Harry Potter alum, Kenneth Branagh, which was going to come out in theaters. And now I think they're going to just release it straight on Disney plus Artemis Fowl is based on a book series. Yes. I've read them. Yeah. The first like four. That was, yeah. that was my middle school series. It was one of my go-tos. Yeah. So, um, so this, you know, he hadn't done a lot before a couple movies, but nothing huge. Before. I mean, I, I'm sure the anticipation of the Green Lantern was huge. But but the Green Lantern came out after this. Oh shit, you're right. Never this was mind. 2007. So my bad. This was his first really big movie. Okay. Um. Yeah. So cast wise, about the same. I mean, we have about most of our, our normal players coming back, except for the new villainess. We do have some notable additions. Um, starting with Ivana Lynch, who was cast as Luna Lovegood. I found this interesting. Apparently in this process of casting Luna Lovegood, they had over 15,000 other girls attend this open casting call. Yeah. 15,000. Um, and they were just waiting and there's apparently a line that stretched a mile long in that line. Apparently was Saoirse Ronan because she was also considered for the role, but did not end up getting it. She would have done well, I think. She would have done well. I think this must have this must have been what was her like breakout role? Um, so she was in um oh uh uh atonement. But but she was she would have been quite young in atonement. This probably would have been like around the time she broke out. Yeah, because it went atonement, then lovely bones, and then she kind of uh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um we also have Imelda Staunton coming in as Dolores Umbridge, 
who does an excellent job as Dolores Umbridge. She made almost perfect casting. Me hate oh, her yeah. immediately, and I say that with the utmost respect. And then we also have Helena Bonham Carter coming in as Bellatrix Lestrange. She was actually not the first choice for that role. No. Um, they originally approached Helen McRory, and she was actually cast, but she had to drop out because she was pregnant and didn't think she could perform the kind of more intense battle sequences of the film. Um, so then they went and recast mm-hmm. it. Um, but McRory did, does appear in The Half-Blood Prince as Narcissa Malfoy. So she comes oh, in. Oh, shit. Well, so, that's, that's a good way yeah. of, because they're sisters, so. Yep. They cut out some notable characters as well. Um, Dobby is not in this, who plays a pretty big role in the books. Um, All the house elves. Creature is still in it. But he was actually cut in one of the one of the drafts of the film. And then J.K. Rowling stepped in and was like, you probably don't want to do that. Um, otherwise, you're going to have a little bit of a mess on your hands later on, story-wise. So he was sta- he stayed in. Um, but the but the other house elves that we've met, we don't see. Right. There's a huge plot line in the book with the house elves again, and that's cut out as well. So, But some other minor roles were cut. They were originally going to have Kenneth Branagh back as Gilderoy Lockhart. Mm-hmm. But the whole sequence where he his character comes back in was cut. Um, and they were also going to have Angelina Johnson in the, in the movie as well. She was in one of the, one of the original, um, scripts, but then they cut out her character and and Quidditch entirely. entirely. There's no Quidditch in this movie. Yeah. So she, she would have been, I think she was in Goblet of Fire as, um, one of the dates for for George. Yeah, she was. And so she's supposed to be the new Quidditch captain. Um, but we'll find out that, you know, none of that exists anymore. (laughs) Um, Um, yeah. So post release, this movie made $940 million. Um, and at the time that was the second highest, um, in the Harry Potter of the Harry Potter movies behind Sorcerer's Stone. Okay. So Um, Sorcerer's Stone still tops the still top at this point through, through five movies. It was still number one. That's impressive. Yeah. Um, apparently, so this came out like, I think in 2010, I saw this story was from 2010 in studio documents that were leaked, it was revealed that this film lost Warner Brothers about $167 million. So even though it made 940, they still lost $167 million. Crazy. What? Yeah. But just... What I are I they using that budget for? I have no idea. I mean, probably off merchandising, they made that back, but still. Holy shit. Yeah. They, and I'm guessing that includes like that includes marketing and stuff yeah. like that for the film. But yeah, crazy. Oh my God. Um, yeah, that's kind of the uh, broad strokes of the movie. All right. Well, uh, let's get into the comparison. Let's do it. So I just wanted to bring up really quick the plot points that never show up and that we're not really going to talk about. Okay. That way we can kind of keep this short and sweet. Number one, Ron and Hermione in the book um, become prefects. Yes. A lot of talk about prefects. A lot of prefect talk. And that kind of plays into Harry's angst and isolation Which a little bit. Which a prefect, bit. for those who don't know, is basically what the... It's it's kind of like the RA of the house. Like if you went to college and you lived on a floor, there was an RA, an older student, who yeah. your resident assistant. Um, that's essentially what they are. So each each house has two, a male and a female. Um 
So, and Malfoy was a prefect for Slytherin. Um, mm-hmm. Doesn't come up, doesn't matter. In all honesty, not heartbroken that it wasn't included. Yeah. Um, like you mentioned, the house elves and Dobby or Spew don't come up besides Creature. Yeah, and like, much like they did in the fourth book where they cut Dobby out, they just transferred some of his his importance in the plot to different various characters. Mm-hmm. Again, they give some to Neville. Um, yeah. So what what he does for the plot largely is still there, but they just give it to other characters. Yeah, they just uh, reassign parts. Um, so um, we mentioned that Quidditch isn't involved at all in this book. Doesn't come up, nothing about it, which is really odd that there's really no mention of it because they could have, I think, fit it in. Yeah. But, um, and that's two straight movies with no, yeah. Um, and this is the book where Ron tries out for, um, the Gryffindor team as keeper, um, and makes it. Um, and then with all of that comes, well, Quidditch plays a big role too, because also Harry is banned from playing Quidditch and and Fred and George in the, in the book too. So like Quidditch plays a large role. And that also, that also takes away from Ginny's character because Ginny is the one who replaces Harry as seeker. And, and a lot of Ginny comes out in this book, like her and Harry's relationship as friends gets closer. And Ginny is becomes much more prominent. Yes. And they cut out uh, a scene that I think could have been really well used in the movie, but we'll get to that later. Um, so Ron doesn't try out actually until the the next movie that we'll see. And we'll talk about that. They kind of moved it around, which to me seems odd. Um, all of the background information and kind of plot lines that we get with order of the Phoenix, the original order of the Phoenix, they kind of parse down Yeah. and keep it really, uh, I mean, there's a lot, just a lot of world building that's not kept, yeah. kept in. I mean, yeah. That's yeah. Very true. Um, all of the shit with Harry and Cho is condensed down, but at, at, in all honesty, I wish it didn't exist in either. Yeah, it was bad in the book and it was bad in the movie. Didn't like it. Didn't serve any fucking purpose. Like I can't purpose. necessarily say they did a bad job of adapting those parts of the book <laughs> because I didn't like it in, in general in the book either. So yeah, um, there's this whole scene um, with Harry and Hermione and Rita Skeeter. Mm-hmm in the book where he gives his full account of Lord Voldemort's return for the Quibbler, which is Luna Lovegood's dad's uh, magazine. That is a huge turning point in the book where people start to believe Harry and start to realize, oh, maybe he's not right. Cause throughout, throughout the book, especially at the beginning, because the ministry is so adamant that, that Voldemort's not back and they have, um, the daily prophet as well under mm-hmm. their control, basically. So they're putting out a lot of stories, discrediting Dumbledore and Harry because they're both saying Voldemort is back Yeah, and they don't want, they don't believe that and they don't want to incite panic and they want to discredit them. So this whole time, that's one of the major plot points that does come into the movie is that nobody or a lot of bit large portion of people at the school and in the wizarding world don't believe Harry yeah. or Dumbledore and think they're crazy. Yeah. Because of that. And this is Harry trying to take back uh, yeah. uh, the power, essentially. Um, there's also um, a character that's introduced in the book um, a little bit more that we don't see in the movie. That's Forenzi, um, the centaur. We'll get into that a little bit when we get into mm-hmm. the um, the comparisons. And then there's um, a, a whole scene between Hagrid, McGonagall, and Umbridge that is taken out as well. Uh, that's pretty powerful and 
upsetting as well. But mm-hmm. those are those are things that just never show up really in any regard. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. So the beginning of the movie starts fairly similar to the book. Yeah. And actually, I I really enjoyed like the first half hour of this movie, like mm-hmm. up through the uh, the trial. Um, I thought it was pretty well done. I mean, there were certain things they cut out that I think would have had a bigger effect on the movie, the movies coming later, but they also cut out the plot lines in those movies too, like Petunia yeah, having a little bit more knowledge of the wizarding world than Harry thought and yeah. kind of her interactions with Dumbledore that comes up. That's kind of been cut out, but they also cut out largely the Dursley's roles in movies six through eight too. So it, there's not a huge amount of, uh, repercussions for, for kind of leaving that in this one. I do think it's interesting. It was an interesting part of the book that I, I think maybe they would have benefited from leaving it in because it wouldn't have taken that much time. I don't think it wouldn't have, it would have enriched, um, our knowledge of why the Dursleys took him in, in the first place. Yeah. Um, because you know, this whole time you're wondering why, why did they like, why did they do it then? Like what is happening? Yeah. And to learn in this moment that Petunia knows what like a Dementor is and that Petunia knows, more of the wizarding world than she's let on. Um, it allows for, she has a more redemptive arc in the book mm-hmm. and, and, yeah. and they don't get that in the movies. No. And I think going forward, there's, there are a lot of moments in this movie where there's emotional, really emotional moments that they, that they, uh, are lacking in because they're devoting more time to action. And I think that that's which not really a, yeah, at the which heart you of the books. See in some of the, in the fourth movie a lot too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it starts similarly. He, he, uh, the gets attacked by a Dementor, him and Dudley. He uses Patronus because of that. He's using magic outside of school. He gets sent a letter saying he's got going to be expelled and let, and he's got this trial to, see if he's going to get expelled from Hogwarts basically. Um, and then we quick cut. So like immediately in the movie you go, they go straight to, um, number 12 Grimwald place. Yeah. So he's rescued by yeah. members of the order and you get right thrown into the, the order of the Phoenix immediately in the book. There's a little bit more time to breathe where it doesn't happen immediately. Like he gets the letter that's going to be expelled and he's still going to wait until, a little while for the, till the trial comes yeah, and stuff like and, that. Yeah, uh, and he's, yeah, it's been a couple one, days. One thing that you mentioned while we were watching this movie that really bothers me now is, uh, like, they're flying, when they're flying from yes. Privet oh Drive to, to the Order of the Phoenix um, base, uh, they're flying, like, super low. Like, just everybody can see them. They're flying, like... But like down through the Thames or whatever. The Thames. The Don't Thames. say Thames. I'm sorry. You'll the get Thames, attacked. Whatever. The um, Thames. <laughs> um, like buy a bunch of like, like buy a tourist boat. boats and shit. And I'm like, in the book, they they explicitly she takes the time to say they're flying high so that they're not seen. They're above the. Classroom. And Harry's been turned invisible. And th- yeah, and this one they're just like, yeah, fuck it, let's just go. Well, here's the thing. Through the through the city, everybody can see us. If this was like a movie making class, there's two ends of the world building spectrum. That end is shit. Where they're like, look, they're flying through London. We need to know about... No, bitch. We can Google London and Big Ben. Like, we know what it looks yeah. like. If you're trying... The world building that matters here, it's like, I know he's going to London. Mm-hmm. I don't need to see him fly by Parliament. You know, get over yourself. Yeah. 
what would have been better would be time spent building more of the ministry, more of Grimald Place, mm-hmm. more of these emotional moments. And instead you're like, let's play some well, really cheery music while yeah, he's escaping other, an abusive environment. That was the other thing. It's like they're playing this like really cheery like music and shit in the middle of this. And it's like in the book, he's escaping he's going it's dark he's and they're going worried to, he's going to be attacked it, it, exactly and then he's going to see if he's going to get expelled this is not like a happy time in his life no it's not a happy he's time he's angry also he's angry at this entire book like he's he's going through some really dark emotion probably the yes. most dark period of his life to, to this point yeah after seeing Cedric die um, that was that was the first tonal shift where we both yeah. like and that and didn't it, translate. And because it was like only that little tiny spot in the beginning, I was actually really, like I said, I thought the first 30 minutes were really good. Mm-hmm. I, I was like, I didn't, I, I was, we were th- part way through it. And I was like, wow, maybe I remembered this movie be, being bad, but actually it's pretty good. And then, um, for example, cause then you go, they go to the, the order of the Phoenix basic Grimald place and you, you meet everybody, you know, the Weasleys are there, uh, Hermione's there, although she's not part of the order, but like Sirius, Lupin, all those guys are there, Snape, all the order members. And from what part of what I said about that I didn't like about the last movie was they left out the end of the book where Dumbledore and Fudge have this big blow up that really sets the tone for the fifth book, this animosity between Dumbledore and the ministry. They do a pretty good job actually of explaining that at the beginning of this movie in the terms of having to condense but still get across a lot of information i think yeah. they did that really well because we are essentially in the same shoes as harry we don't really know what's been happening yeah so that's a way for them to explain it to harry but also to us right. as viewers and i think that they did it well yeah i thought i liked that part there was the scene where Sir- they sit- they're sitting down in the kitchen and sirius is explaining to him harry like what's going on and they bring up you know that that voldemort is trying to um, build an army again and all this stuff and which sets up what's going to happen with Hagrid later in the book. Um, so I think they, they bridged that gap pretty well. I still think it would have been more impactful and made more sense if they kept it in at the end of the Goblet of Fire. Yes. But they did an okay job of explaining it in this one so you weren't completely like what the hell is going on. Right. Absolutely. Um, they did a very good job of that. They skip over some of the, they skip over a lot more trivial stuff with like the, the, the kids helping clean the house and get, well, I don't even, I don't know if I'd say this trivial. I think a lot of that is building kind of your knowledge of Sirius and his life. And there are Easter eggs in there. Yeah. We, for sure. This is where we hear the first time of a locket. And that's something that when you reread the book, and this is the first time you're hearing of Bellatrix, although that's in the movie still where he's talking. Yes his family tree because Bellatrix is Sirius's cousin. They just shift it around on the timeline. Right. But it's really kind of building Harry's understanding of Sirius in that relationship, making it a little bit stronger. That's very true. And understanding. And a little bit, yeah. A, yeah. And they, I think they do a pretty good job with that because there is a scene in the movie where him and Sirius still have like a one-on-one heart-to-heart kind of moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they actually carried that relationship over pretty well. I do wish that now that you mentioned that, that Sirius that we did give just a, a little bit more background. Like we did, yeah. we did like, we know that his, he didn't get along with his family. Uh, he doesn't explicitly say that they're all Slytherins and he was a Gryffindor. We don't get that piece of knowledge. Yeah. Um, we just get that, uh, there's bad blood. But you get that he's a black sheep in the family. Yes. A black sheep. You also meet creature literally. in this yeah. moment who is the, the house elf, mm-hmm. uh, Sirius's family house elf. Um, 
And then very quickly again, they switch and he goes, he's going off to the ministry for his um, trial. And I think, I mean, this is pretty similar. They leave certain things out. Um, you don't, you don't see Arthur Weasley's like office and stuff, but for the most part, and it, they but did we, a good job at the beginning of the movie, like putting in little details, yeah, like the certain things in the ministry, like the memos flying around like little paper airplanes and stuff like that. All of the flu networks, the, they got the yeah. fountain and all of that. And also I just love, I love Arth the whole scene with Arthur yeah. in the underground. I think that's yeah. endearing. That's how you juxtapose a, a, a wizard in the muggle world, mm-hmm. not flying brooms at fucking tourist boats. Yeah, um, exactly. But yeah, we, they're immediately, you're, they're there, they're doing the trial. It's obviously super intimidating. Dumbledore shows up. This is where we learned Dumbledore's full name. I just want to mm-hmm. say that. Is that in the movie? Yes. He okay. says Albus Percival Wolfric Brian Dumbledore. Yeah. So Dumbledore shows up for her, for his defense and, and this me, is... So yeah, they're in the quarterback. I, let me just pause here for a second. I, this is a really cool shot. I liked this shot. The, in the direction? Movie. The direction was... Oh, there, were, there was moments where the direction was good. This was one of them, which... In the fourth, which was nice because the fourth movie I hated so much. I, there was nothing in that movie. I and liked. this, and this should be noted. This is the first time we're going inside the Ministry of Magic. Yeah, but the set so design it was unbelievable. It, there's a lot of really cool sets in this movie, and you can go visit that set. You can. Oh, really? The Ministry of Magic set is uh, in London. You can go visit it. Yeah. And honestly, maybe maybe the direction wasn't that fantastic. Maybe it's all just the set, and they just had. The knowledge I, whoa, whoa, whoa. to show it off. I wasn't I saying know. the direction for the whole movie was fantastic. No. I was saying this, in this one moment. shot was the, the beginning of this movie in general. I thought was pretty good. But this one shot was I liked in yes. the courtroom. And I, like you said, this is a beautiful world building moment. Understanding the yeah. layout of the ministry, how this body of government works, and then also how essentially a trial works. Yeah. And um, in the book, it's a big deal because he's being tried by the entire Wisengamot, I think is what it's Wizen called. Wisengamot. With um, the minister of magic, like presiding, presiding over. over, which is not common at all. So like, yeah, it's, it, in the book, they don't know until they get there that, cause he thinks he's just going to be tried by a small group who normally handles like the educational stuff. And then it's they, after they get to the ministry yeah. of magic, he, they learn, Oh no, I'm going to go in front of the entire pretty much the entire judicial branch of the minister of magic. It's like, Hey, I'm going to go pay my parking ticket. And then all of a sudden you're before the U S Supreme court. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. Um, but this is also where we meet Dolores Umbridge and Mrs. Fig. Mm-hmm. So Mrs. Fig is in the movie, um, this time, but in the book, she plays a bigger role cause she was Harry's babysitter down the street. Yeah. And they omit like the whole squib, like she's a squib in the book, meaning somebody who's born into a magical family. They don't mention magic. it, but she doesn't use magic in the. No, but they don't actually, they don't ever say anything no. either. You wouldn't know. One thing that I didn't like about this beginning of the movie upon reflection is that, so you see Percy there. Percy. And I was at, the, yeah. at first I was like, oh, okay, that's fine. Cause in the book that's where he's at because he's disowned his family basically. And is the minister's little puppet. He's chosen his side, but for somebody not who had, was not familiar with the books, that's got to be compu- confusing as fuck because they never yeah. explain it. There's just all, no. all of a sudden Percy is there with the minister of magic and his entire family is off, you know, basically working against him. And, uh, the, yeah, they never explain this, that there was a rift between them. And again, so and like, that's one thing I'm like, 
if you're gonna exclude that subplot of like explaining why he's there maybe just don't show him there because otherwise it's just confusing well and they're making they're making assumptions that every person who's watched the movies has read the books and that's not at all accurate and percy was a big part of the movies up until this point and so yeah yeah that's again that's an emotional moment an emotional tie that would have benefited from being in there. However, you know, we know that he, um, with the help of Dumbledore and Mrs. Fig, he's cleared of all charges, but this is also another moment where Dumbledore and Fudge go at each other. Mm -hmm. Um, and we see it person to person that rift. Um, and then we're kind of transported right away to platform nine and three quarters. But yeah, this is just another instance where they condense things down and, you, I don't know if you lose a ton. No, I don't think that. you. I mean, there there was some some stuff in the middle there, but um, a lot of it is um, like reflective and yeah. about relationships and internal, you know, turmoil. And um, yeah, this is the train ride is pretty. I don't really think that they focus on it all that much. And then all of a sudden they're at Hogwarts, and um, yeah, I mean the train ride in the movie they they meet Luna. In, yes. in both the movie and the book, obviously because they cut the prefect stuff out, there's a little, there's a little bit that's not in there in the movie, which yeah. is, I don't think it really took too much away from it. No. Um, and then it's similar. They get, they get to the, they get to Hogwarts and, um, Harry's surprised to see some like weird flying horse thing <laughs> carrying, uh, pulling the carriages, which usually are pulled by and nothing. Yeah. Um, and that's when like him and Luna have their first kind of uh, real connection as characters where Luna can also see what he finds out to be called, are called Thestrals yeah. carrying the carriage. So that's in there too. Um, but once again, this has kind of been a common theme. When they get inside of Hogwarts, we don't have a sorting hat scene. Nope. Um, and there's, it's a big deal in the book, you know, that the sorting hat has a new song and that he's essentially warning people about yeah. what's to come. Um, but they, the introduction of Umbridge is pretty spot on and yeah. pretty similar. And, um, it is amazing to me how, whether you're reading the book or in the movie, th- the amount of animosity you immediately feel for this person. And I was trying to think of like, why, like, why does it work so well? Why do I, and everybody like when it comes to her and Voldemort, there are times that my hate for her is more. She's a great villain, a great movie villain. too. She is, they, they casted it very well. And, and I was like, why does this, why does this irk me so much? And it's, and I think it's cause she is a physical embodiment of a threat to a world that we as viewers yeah. believe is our own. And also going back to what we said earlier about why this is kind of relevant. She is the follower and mouthpiece for a terrible leader who's only concerned with, you know, yeah. the perception of himself it, and an ins- she's knowingly ignoring it's facts. really interesting. I mean, in the book t- as well, that even though Voldemort is back in this, in this book completely for the first time, really the main, the main, um, villain in the book too is Umbridge in the ministry. Yes. Like, I thought that was interesting that, J.K. Rowling chose to, after all this buildup of Voldemort, Voldemort for four books, he yeah. finally comes back and he almost takes like a backseat. He's always there because of the visions and things Harry is having. Right. Um, 
but like he's away from the story still, you know, and Umbridge and Fudge Similar are to the, uh, Prisoner of Azkaban, right? A little bit. Yeah, a little bit. In terms of he's still the villain, he's still out there, but like. Um, well, Azkaban, though, like. He's even more. I, I mean, I, I don't That's know. True. He's even he's not even really part of the plot except for Wormtail. That's true. Um, I, so I don't know. I think this is a little bit different. It, it is different but, because he's still there and he's still a threat that everybody's talking about and there's actions going against him. But when, when you're looking at Harry's story, the immediate kind of villain in conflict, a lot of the time it has to do with Umbridge and the ministry. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole conflict of this book is the, the wizarding world isn't unified in trying to defeat Voldemort because they don't believe he's there. Right. And so I think that was interesting that, that she chose to do that. And it kind of makes for, I think, a more interesting kind of, because uh, otherwise you'd have three straight books of Voldemort being right the entire, you know, conflict. So I kind of like that she chose to do something a little bit different. And I think it pays off. Yeah. I think it does. Um, so upon her, you know, arrival to Hogwarts, the... Um, you know, it's, it's now known that the ministry is trying to kind of hold power over the school, mm-hmm. which it, it, you know, it kind of comes to that separate branches of government, right? Like yeah. the checks and balances type of situation. Um, but now that they're interfering and she soon becomes the high inquisitor, yeah. which means that she has power to, and, uh, well, she has hap- all of these powers. This happens like extremely early in the movie too. Way too early. And, and this is where the movie for me goes off the rails is when they get back to Hogwarts and it, it just it's almost like you're watching a summary of the story because they just cut so quickly, like immediately she's the high inquisitor. And then it's montage after montage yeah. after montage. Yep. Like, dudes, it's so like, I, I feel like oh a third God. of this movie is montages of like her put it and then putting up new decrees. Part of the story is because she's the high inquisitor. She can pass new decrees that are basically rule new school rules that she's in charge of. So like there's like a bunch of a montage of Filch hammering a bunch of new decrees up on the wall for her way more than we're in the book, which is fine. I mean, it's, it was a right. good visual. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't like that storytelling. Like the, the first time they did it, I was like, okay, it's fine. Like, because one of the things that, that Yates chose to do was have part of the story being told really quickly to get, to get some exposition out was to like show, like a daily prophet and like them go through some of the stories basically in the daily prophet really quickly he, on screen. So it was like a montage through a, a, a newspaper basically as yeah, the medium. Like, and if you've seen fantastic beasts, he does that. He too. does the exact same but thing. He does it twice in this movie. And then there's other montages thrown in there and it, it just, it makes it, I don't know. And this is where it gets really disjointed where you have again, these really, really stark shifts in tone. Yeah. Um, and, I have a problem with that because Harry's supposed to be pissed this entire book. And that's where like super angry. And I don't know if that comes across because they're playing like this, like happy music over certain things that I don't know. It doesn't work they just, for me. In the book. Um, first off, like we said, the, the rise to her being inquisitor, the decrees, everything that she's doing is done not only quickly in terms of how they're showing it, but in terms of a timeline. So, um, it just doesn't make sense. And in the book, 
um, Harry's angst and anger and and all of that is being juxtaposed by um, essentially his DA meetings. Mm-hmm. The one thing that's giving him hope in all of this is being able to teach his friends how to defend themselves. and um, Yeah, especially because he's been banned from playing yes. Quidditch. That's like his only... It's his only outlet. His and only it's, outlet. The only, it's, only thing like that's, that's keeping him happy is the DA. And he and it's something that's directly going against Umbridge, right? So he's getting that kind of revenge. And that's where I think that they should have done that juxtaposition of, you know, that anger that he's feeling that we see that they don't, they just, I'm sorry, they don't, Daniel Radcliffe didn't give that. To, he seemed frustrated and he seemed slightly alienated, but he more just seemed like kind of like just fucking pathetic. Like I just didn't, I didn't believe it. I didn't believe his anger was there a lot of the time. Well, and like there was a, no, I like one thing that really stuck out to me was a scene like during the, one of the DA different Dumbledore's army, like training scenes, which again is another montage a lot of the time and too quick and too much and too cheesy. Yeah. That's the thing. I was like, this seems like cheesy. Like he's giving some weird speech and I was like, this doesn't ring true at all to what he would have been like No, in the book. I mean, yeah. And and just made for these weird tonal shifts where you'd have something really dark and then, Oh, like happy music, them practicing spells together. Um, and then there's also, they well, added in uh, Umbridge essentially constantly trying to disband it and find out where yeah. the DA was going on. I mean, on. that happens in the book, but they added in some, a part of another montage was um, Filch like trying to capture them uh, or trying to catch them. But in the book, it happens one time Yeah, and they're successful. Yeah. And this, it's just like, I don't, it comes to that moment of... It just doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense. Um, and it just didn't feel true. Yeah. Like you said, to the tone that everything was going of everything else. So, so yeah. And then in the middle of this, they're also still setting up the Cho relationship. Um, put it in the trash. Don't want to talk about it. Like, <laughs> okay. ugh. I mean, some of it's similar that they, yeah. they don't, they don't show Hogsmeade in this. And there's a whole, they go to Hogshead. Oh, they do, but they don't show the second whatever. There's another time they go to Hogsmeade where him and Cho go on a date. And the they Valentine's don't, they don't show Day, that, yeah, so they yeah, cut yeah, that yeah. out. But yeah, largely the middle of this movie is like a bunch of montages. He's still Harry's having these visions of seeing the Department of Ministries door, and um, so this leads kind of into um, Harry having a vision of Arthur Weasley getting attacked. But before that even happens, they they mix up the timeline. So Trelawney, as we know in this movie and in the book, gets fired by Umbridge. Yeah. The, in the movie, that happens like almost right away after Umbridge is High Inquisitor. Uh, in the movie, that doesn't happen until Harry's, you know, back from winter break and doing all of this stuff. Um, it happens way too soon and before the DA is even formed. Yeah. So, but like you said, the hogshead, a scene is very similar to the people signing up. And then we get Harry's vision of right, the hogshead is where they like originally meet to yes. form the Dumbledore's army group where they're yes. like, let's practice spells because we can't practice. We're not doing any actual, um, defense against the dark arts work and, 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 uh, and we're going to be tested on it. Like yeah. they're doing their owls. Um, so they're going to be tested on how to do it. And then we get that really intense scene 
um, that dream scene with with Harry and the snake and Arthur Weasley. And there are some differences in that as well. Yeah, it, it's just kind of a jumble. The middle of the movie. I don't know. It. And yeah. Like, I feel it's it's hard to even go through the plot of the movie in this bit because it just, it's all montages. It's jumbled in my mind because yeah. there's so many like yeah montages and little things that happen, and they just don't give anything enough time to breathe. Um, no. Either in my opinion, as I get it because it's a really long book. It's hard to put into a movie, I guess. But I don't like after such a promising like first 20 30 minutes yeah it just completely crashed for me um yeah it got sad and then uh they cut yeah they, they they like have the attack well so here's another thing that bothered me like so so he sees the attack on uh arthur weasley and he finds out it was actually real well he th- he knew it was real and then he they went goes to dumbledore and Dumbledore alerts somebody and they find Arthur has been actually been attacked and it wasn't just a vision of his. Mm-hmm. And immediately in the book, I mean, immediately, immediately in the movie, he goes straight to, like after being awoken up in the middle of the night, goes straight to Snape for a lesson in what they call occlumency, where he's basically trying to shut his mind off from Voldemort because they realize him and Voldemort have this connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and he can, he can, that's why he's seeing these visions and they don't want Voldemort to be able to, to go the other direction and go into Harry's head. Yeah, and make him do or see or say things. That's what they're worried about, and immediately. Yeah, so it's just like they because of how long the book is, they had to do things so fast that it almost it's just jarring. Like, okay, so we see, oh, Arthur Weasley's been attacked immediately. Harry's in a lesson with Snape, trying to like guard his mind. Like in the book, he goes with the Weasleys to the hospital. They have the whole Christmas scene, but he's he's with the Weasleys at the hospital. You have them going to the wizarding hospital St. Mungo's and that's where Lockhart come, comes in because yeah. his mind has been that's destroyed. Where Neville's parents come in. That's where you get all that. So the, like, there's just no room to breathe and it just goes straight in and I don't, I don't know, I didn't like that. No, that, That's a large problem with the middle of this yeah. this movie is they give such so little time to the, the school year and it's kind of bookended on either side by like the trial and stuff at the beginning which I think is done pretty well. And then at the end, yeah, the whole the fight scene, the fight scene with the department mysteries in the ministry and uh, the middle just doesn't work at all for me. Yeah. It, Cause then Hagrid comes back like, after Christmas in the book. He comes back earlier than that. Cause Hagrid at the end of the fourth book, Dumbledore is sending him off on a mission. Yeah. With and the limp with Madame Maxine at the beginning of this, the order of the Phoenix, he's still gone right. and he doesn't come back until partway of the school partway through the school year. So he's got, a stand-in Professor Grubbly Plank teaching for him. Mm-hmm. And so that's a pretty big plot point in the book. Obviously, that's the Grubbly Plank stuff was omitted in the movie. But Hagrid does, doesn't isn't doesn't come back until um, after Christmas in the movie. In the book, he comes back earlier. But again, that's really it's really condensed. But they don't explain, they don't set up like as well where he's been or who he's been with because he's been is they don't connect it as well to the fourth, the fourth book or movie in the movie, because you know where right. he's at kind of, you know, he's been sent on a mission and you know, he's been with like Olympi, which is the headmistress of Bobaton from the fourth. Right. They, story they just, from, they don't, Goblet of Fire. they don't um, set it up. They don't really set up the mission and the importance of it. What they, what they are setting up is Hagrid's relationship with his half brother. Right. And so this and is that. The, yeah. And in all, in all honesty, um, odd 
to me. Like I kind of thought if you're going to take anything out, take out Grop. Yeah. So this is, he doesn't come into it. Yeah. In so any this of the is, movies this is another storyline that they condensed down is, uh, so Haggard is like half giant and that's why that was the significance of Olympia going with him. Cause she's also half giant. They're going trying to head off Voldemort from getting the giants back on his side. Cause he's trying to build his army. They're trying to head him off and get the giants on Dumbledore's side. Um, so that yes. they don't have to, you know, they're, they're trying to basically preempt Voldemort from adding these people to his side. Yeah. Like, and so that's the whole, I mean, that was the whole thing. That's the whole, um, conflict with Dumbledore and the ministry is like Dumbledore is saying you need to take all these steps and he realizes the ministry isn't going to take any of these steps against Voldemort because he, they don't yeah. believe he's back. So he's got to do it himself. And that's the whole point of Dumbledore, the order of the Phoenix. Yeah. Is, is taking and, the steps that the ministry Yeah, They don't won't. explain that as well. But yeah, part of that is, um, Hagrid finds his half brother who is a giant brings him back to Hogwarts. And so they leave that in. So that happens after, the Arthur Weasley attack in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, they leave that part in, but it, I don't know. It feels a little bit because they don't give it the proper time in the movie. It feels a little bit out of place. And um, he doesn't play that big a role. No, but Hagrid does introduce them to Grop, his brother, because he's, he's thinking he'll be fired any day. That's why they're introduced to him. And, um, that he just wants them to take care of him if he's gone. Um, and all of this essentially after this, actually in the movie before they meet Grop, that is when the DA is discovered and disbanded by Umbridge and Cho in the movie is the one that quote unquote rats them out. She, yeah, that's a change. Cause in the book it's her Cho's it's, friend. Who- yes. And, and the, in the movie, Cho was given a uh, vitro serum, which is a truth truth serum. So yeah, so they they find they catch them having a s- student organization that's been banned, basically, and then they see the they see the name of the organization as Dumbledore's army, and Fudge is there, and he's like, oh, so you are, you know, his worst fears that Dumbledore is working against him and creating, creating an, an army. army against him to take over the ministry, and this basically causes Dumbledore to have to leave Hogwarts. Well, Dumbledore, you know, falls on the sword. He yeah. says, no, this isn't Harry's doing. This is my doing. And cause Harry was going to be expelled and they try to arrest him and take him to Azkaban for treason. And he's like, yeah, no, I'm not gonna go quietly. And he makes a badass escape and it's cool. And Harry's still in school, but in the movie they're going, they're going to detention. They're being punished for all of this. Um, that's when we learn Cho rats them out. After all of that happens, they meet Grop and then um, they're sitting through their owls. They're, um, they, they just, they, they fast forward everything. Like it cuts from finding out Cho did it to meeting Grop to uh, all of the sudden they're taking their owls. And we have, we, we still get that scene with Fred and George um, causing mayhem and leaving school early. Yeah. All of that stuff that comes into it a little bit later in the books, but amidst all of that in the movie, Harry has his vision, but it's not a dream. It's a vision, like a literal vision of Voldemort torturing Sirius mm-hmm. at the department of mysteries and the ministry of magic. And then 
the final act of the movie is all dedicated to this rescue mission. Yeah. Well, so before that though, Harry goes into Umbridge's office cause he wants to use her, the flu network because he saw, because he's what, what the vision he had and right. Umbridge catches them and they tell Umbridge that they've been making a secret weapon for Dumbledore out in the woods because they're going to lure her out there. This is a little bit different. So because they don't set up the whole centaur subplot with Frenzy. So in the book, there's a, there's a centaur who comes in named Frenzy who takes over for Trelawney as the mm-hmm. divination professor. And um, so Umbridge is known to have this like really intense hate for half, half breeds basically is what they call him. Quote so like Hagrid yeah. because he's half giant and um, a centaur because he's, you know, half human, half horse. And uh, so they, that, that comes in as well. That's kind of omitted as well. But so when they're taking her out to the, Forest, forest in in the book they know they're going for this they're, they're going to take her out to the centaurs lead her there so that they can they she gets taken and they get a, they and, can escape and then there's this added tension because the centaurs are given land to live on by the ministry and they've been controlling that land and giving them less and less space to roam so we then have a subplot essentially of colonialism of native people versus you know Mm -hmm. oppressors which is interesting in its own right it doesn't really play a part yeah but because that whole centaur thing's left out they're just taking him out to to grop in the movie which doesn't make as much sense it only works quite as well the centaurs are still there but it's for a different reason and yeah the centaurs do show up and they still do take her away like they do in in the book uh in the book grop is the one who takes who essentially saves harry and hermione from the centaurs because they are upset with them for making just rude comments essentially. But again, that's not really important. What's important is Umbridge is out of the equation. Right. Um, karma, you know, it's all come full circle. So then they, um, are planning to go to the ministry of magic altogether. So that includes Neville, Luna, Ginny, Ron, um, Harry and Hermione. I believe is the, the entire group. They take the Thestrals, um, which again, in the movie, they made way too fucking cheery. Yeah. I don't know. This was also in like an, another spot where there was a weird shift in tone because they're going to like save what they think is going to save Sirius. Who's being tortured by Voldemort and they're playing this cheery music while they're flying through the air. It doesn't work. It and, didn't, it did just completely cuts the tension and, and then all of a sudden they're just in the ministry of magic. Yeah. Like they don't say how they got in there. And this is like, there was a lot of like really cool, um, kind of things that JK Rowling wrote for the department of mysteries, like really interesting kind of like weird visuals, like in, in different room, there's different rooms with a bunch of really different kind of weird stuff. And they kind of cut out a lot of that, which I think it would have been more interesting if they had, taking more time to explore the department the of department mysteries. of mysteries in and of itself is a mystery yeah so they leave some of that out and it goes straight to they go they find out where we're supposed to go immediately um so it's just a little bit less interesting in in the movie i think there's not it's not as interesting of a location right their their skills aren't being tested and i think that was part of the reason in the book that it was harder to get to yeah. is they're testing those d8 their their skills but um 
and this is where there's a really big departure is, uh, they find the, the room of prophecies and Neville discovers in the, in the movie, a prophecy with Harry's name on it. Yeah. Lord Voldemort's with a question mark. And you can see the initials of who it's by. And you can see that they're Trelawney's initials and, Mm -hmm. and Dumbledore's, which is just a nice detail. Um, they have that in the book as well, but in the book, Harry doesn't pick it up and hear the prophecy. He picks it up and that's when this whole battle begins of trying to keep it away from the Death Eaters. And, um, but in the movie, he picks it up and we hear the entire prophecy. Right. And I did not like that. No, I didn't like that either. Because by the end of the book, there's this really emotional scene with Dumbledore and they've just completely ruined it. And we'll get to that when we kind of get to that scene, yeah, but then but they get into the room they where they, they think Sirius is being tortured. They don't know what's in there when they get there. They don't know it's a room full, but it's a room full of prophecies and Harry's seen inside the room, but he doesn't know that it's a room full of prophecies. Though. Right. Yes. That's what I'm saying. And they get there and Sirius isn't there. And it turns out that Voldemort put the image in Harry's mind to get him there because they're the, the weapon they've been talking about this entire book that Voldemort's trying to get from the department of mysteries is a, the prophecy. It's knowledge of why him and Harry are connected. He's trying to figure out mm-hmm. like what, how they're connected so he can defeat Harry basically. And so basically it was a trap. And so that's largely similar. That's large. Yes. That's and very then similar. The death eaters show up immediately cause they're waiting for him to come. Yeah. And, and then yeah, like you said, they they he grabs the prophecy and immediately immediately hears, hears what the prophecy is, which I didn't like either because that kind of defeats the whole point of having to bring Harry there in the first place. Um, and the the urgency of it, it it just I don't. Yeah, it just, and we'll get into why I don't enjoy it when we kind of get to the end of the book slash movie. But the Death Eaters like show up almost immediately. Yeah, and they have a battle. It's pretty, I don't, I don't like, uh, David Yates, like his battle sequences. Well, and we both had an issue with the, the, um, the, I don't know what you would call it. The, the flying, everybody turns into like a cloud and can just like fly. And I don't know if that was supposed to be his interpretation of apparition. I don't like it, but it, because it's weird, the death eaters could do it. And then we have the order of the Phoenix members come in and they can also do this like, turn into smoke and then yeah. reappear somewhere else. And it's, it's, it's very, and it shows up. And I think some of the other Harry Potter movies after this, and I, it's just, it doesn't work for me. I don't. Yeah. I wasn't, a, I wasn't a fan of it either. Um, but you know, uh, yeah, I didn't like that, but I mean, it plays out pretty similar. Obviously they cut out a lot of it, but you know, Sirius ends up dying in this At, battle. by the hands of Bellatrix and yeah. Um, and then, um, I did like that they kept in Harry trying to do the Cruciatus curse on her. Yeah. So like after Sirius dies, Harry Bellatrix kills him. Harry runs after her up there, up to back to um, the main area of the ministry of magic. And that's where he, yeah, he tries to do the Cruciatus. I did like that. They kept that in. Yeah. Um, And then, yeah, similar from there. I mean, Dumbledore shows up, Voldemort shows up, Dumbledore and Voldemort battle. That was a weird battle. Yeah, I think it was better in the in the book. Mm-hmm. Just be, in the movie, they did this weird thing where like Voldemort like 
I don't, I don't know that he takes over Harry's Harry or something. Well, and in the book, there is a moment where Voldemort is speaking through Harry, similarly to kind of in his dreams when Harry yeah. will, will kind but of yell direc- out. The direction in this spot was just fucking literally Harry was writhing around on the floor like a snake and then they'd have like little like flashes of Voldemort like (laughs) there's a there's a flash of Voldemort in like his I don't know mind where he just goes (laughs) yeah it's just like it doesn't work it's it's really bad Um, and uh and then there's they make it really cheesy because here's here's where it all goes downhill for me is the last scene in this book is all about Dumbledore and Harry and in this moment Harry is being possessed by by Voldemort but yet he has this weird cheesy speech of like you know I'm I feel sorry for you like you'll never know love and I have love and Harry's like has this I don't know fucking epiphany at 15 about love that in 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 the book it's different Harry's yeah that doesn't happen Harry's thinking well at least if I die I can be with Sirius again I think they just didn't translate that well to the screen like how angry he was supposed to be no not at all but similarly they Dumbledore and Voldemort battle um and then a bunch of people show up from the ministry and they see Voldemort is actually alive and there before he disappears and then he Voldemort disappears and that's kind of the end of the book um Mm-mm. part sorry okay so but that's basically we're now we're at the end of the story um and they can't deny anymore that Voldemort's back so so that kind of conflict between Dumbledore and the ministry and Harry and the ministry is kind of solved now because they can't deny that Voldemort's back right and that leads a lot what directly into the beginning of the sixth book. And then the very kind of end of the book is what you were talking about. This is, this is where, and I think we had a similar thing with prisoner of Azkaban where the shrieking shack scene, yeah. which we both loved and they really condensed and, down and the, and Goblet of fire where they, the, the conversations at the end of the books are really important and there's, they're crucial and they're emotional and they have all of this wonderful payoff for all the frustrations and and tragedy and this whole book you're just you're, you're like pissed at Harry because he's so mad that he's fucking everything up for himself and everybody else but also you get it you're like why isn't Dumbledore talking to me why am I on the outs why why am I why is this happening to me right yeah. that angst is there and then with the book uh, Dumbledore creates a port key, sends Harry to his office and then meets him there. And there's this beautiful, tragic conversation where Dumbledore says, I have failed you. I messed up. This whole book is about people failing. Yeah. It is all about failure. It is showing that the hero of Harry failed. It is showing that Dumbledore with all of his power failed. The ministry failed. The ministry by not failed. Believing and backing up. Sirius failed because he you know, he exposed himself and yeah. he, and all of this, it's about failure and oh, basically a, everybody made the wrong decision. Yes. And yeah. it, and it sucks, but it's the reason why the story continues, right? This is the catalyst for what will come yeah. in book six and seven. Um, but to see Dumbledore tell Harry, I wasn't strong enough to tell you the truth. And this is because Harry doesn't know what the prophecy says. Yeah. So that's why I feel like they should have yeah, left so the, that here where, well, where Dumbledore prophe- has to say, I have failed you, not now, but for five years. Yeah. Well, and the prophecy is say, basically saying that 
Harry is either going to have to kill Voldemort or Voldemort is going to have to kill Harry. Neither can live while the other survives. Yeah. And so he was trying to protect his happiness basically by not telling him what the prophecy actually said. Because his life is going to involve either him dying or him murdering somebody. Right. Which is not a happy existence. No. And and we, I think every reader can sympathize with Dumbledore and say, because he goes through like, when should I have told you? When you were 11 and defeated him for the first time? When you were trapped in the Chamber of Secrets and you watched almost your your friend die? You get why he didn't tell him, but to see Dumbledore admit failure and admit and and have and have to tell Harry mm-hmm. what he has been avoiding for years. Yeah. That is what I wanted. Dumbledore not only to say he was wrong, but he had to do what he had been avoiding that whole time. That is why that's impactful. And they took that away when Harry was like, Harry literally they're in the office. He's like, I'm going to have to kill him. Aren't I? Neither can live while the other survives. Yeah. I'm Harry. Harry sums up. I was like, no, Dumbledore should have had to do that. Yeah. In my opinion, if it is about his failure, he needs to have that redemption. I agree. I didn't like, I didn't like that. They changed that. I think they, they screw a, up the end of the movies. Well, and like then the, the, at least four and five. Well, and then well, book six is all about the relationship between Dumbledore and Harry yeah. and, and to have Dumbledore say, I cared too much. I loved, I loved too much like that. He's saying, I love you to Harry. Like I care for you. You don't get that. Yeah. And then they, though, the way they ended this movie, when they're, they're heading back to the train, the Hogwarts Express, Mm -hmm. and Harry does another one of his hero little speeches, like, we're going to be fine. We have something worth fighting for. Yeah. Fuck off. (laughs) Ugh, that was vomitous to me. I don't know why. Yeah. I I don't know. I wanted it to end with that beautiful moment that terribly beautiful moment between Harry and Dumbledore because book six is all about them literally taking dark road trips together. Yeah. It doesn't end. The book doesn't end on like a hopeful note. No. Yeah. It's, it's a, I think you could describe it as a note of acceptance. Like the world knows. Yeah. And now we have to prepare. Like that is a note that you could deem as hopeful, but the way that they did it, not in the same way, yeah. No, I didn't. I didn't like it. Um, yeah. The movie first half hour was pretty good. I thought. The recommend rest, the first thirty minutes. <laughs> overall, not a great ad- adaptation. I mean, if you're just going yeah. off the first half hour, they did the a first good half job, hour. For, you know, Chef's Kiss. You know, the they did a pretty it, good job. Yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't a big fan of. I am excited though to uh, to get a start on. Um, Half Blood Prince because this is yeah. we'll see if see if Steve Close can redeem himself after the well, Goblet of Fire this, and this book is um, is really dependent on well you learn a lot about the world and yeah. Voldemort but this is where we learn a lot about Voldemort about Snape about Dumbledore and Harry yeah. and all that and I'm very excited to reread the book mainly because it's not 800 pages <laughs> <laughs> I will say I did like some of the the sets and like the the direction some of the direction in this movie yes. not all of it but some of it was pretty good like this, so the visuals I think were 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 done well yes so, they they were beautiful um in, for the majority of the I think time the, the hard the the main pitfall was them trying to adapt a 800 plus page book into 
I mean, at least do it, give it like, at least give it, you know, the Lord of the Rings treatment and do like a three and a half hour movie. If you're going to do a movie, this or book this long. Yeah, I I agree. Do you want to get into the Goodreads and uh, Rotten Tomatoes? Let's do it. Okay. What do you think? Harry Potter and Order of the Phoenix has on Goodreads. I actually, I say, I remember not liking this book as much as the other ones. And after reading it, I got to say, it's probably, I don't know if it's my favorite, but it's up there now. I really enjoyed this one. Competing with Order of the Phoenix or not Order of the Phoenix. With Prisoner of Azkaban. Yeah. 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 I'm going to give, I'm going to say, I could also see people not liking this as much though. I'm going to say a 4.3, 4.35. 4.5 even damn out off. of 2 million ratings is that what are the is that the highest so far i don't remember what the other ones were. um i believe it's it's up there with one of the highest yeah um order of the phoenix good to know that it was universally liked and and also the fact that it has a three-year gap between this like a lot of anticipation so, yeah that's true yeah it did a really good job all right what do you think for Critics and viewers score of this movie. Oh, Jesus. Because whenever I think the critics are going to hate it, they're like, eh, it's okay. And then the audience. So I'm going to go with that trend because that happened with Glo- Goblet of Fire. So I'm going to say critics gave it an 87. And I'm going to say audience gave it an 80. Close on the audience. It was 81. 81 for, okay. Switch your number around for the... Uh, 78? 78. Which I think is... I think that's a fair... Maybe still a little generous. Maybe but. a little generous. But is that the one of the it lowest? It was still better than the Goblet of Fire in my is opinion. It, is, but is that the lowest critic score? It I seems th- like it. Yeah. So far. Goblet wow. of Fire got like an 80 something, I think. Yeah. I was surprised Goblet of mind. Fire did as well as it did. All right. Well, shit. But yeah, that's the lowest so far. All right. That's, I mean, it's not surprising. But I am surprised that it's lower than Goblet of Fire. Yeah, bit. like Apple of Fire was an 88. Yeah. I don't understand. I don't understand that one at all. I, of course, Ron Tomatoes is kind of bullshit, but it's fun, to, it's fun to look at still. For sure. Okay, so this was, um, this was a long episode, but I'm going to take a guess and say that most of us have a lot of free time. So hopefully you enjoyed <laughs> uh, listening to this. Um, hopefully the plot wasn't too jumbled when we were trying to explain it, but it's tough because it's, it's hard. such a long book. It's such a long book. And like we said in the movie, it's so jumbled. Yeah. So I'm hoping for better things with Half Blood Prince because this is one of my favorite books, um, and it was one of my favorite movies mainly because, um, not necessarily for adaptation purposes, but because this is the first time we see Harry and Dumbledore yeah. kind of working together. Um, but I'm curious to see how that may or may not change based on um, reading and watching it back to back. So should be good. Um. So you can read along with us if you want. Pick up a book. Uh, it's a hundred pages shorter than the mm-hmm. other one. And um, if you like this or any of, of our other um, episodes, like and subscribe on iTunes or Spotify, Google Play. Uh, we're also on Stitcher. If um, you have suggestions for what we should do after this series wraps up in the next two or three episodes, email them to us at sourcematerialpod at gmail.com. Or on tweet us. social media, you can tweet us at source map pod or I'm reach out. Going to be ready for something else. Yes. We are ready for a cleanse. Yeah. 
Maybe um, something short. Yes. There might be such thing um, as too much Harry Potter in, in, in a row, but um, yeah. then, um, or on Facebook and Instagram at source material pod, you can find us there. And uh, that's all we got for you. So mm-hmm. thanks for listening. Thank you so much. Until next time. Until next time. <laughs>